want you to uh, imagine a hot, sultry afternoon. A bit difficult today, isn't it? <laughs> a hot, sultry summer afternoon. And uh, you're near some mountains and you've, the, the afternoon has gone on. You have seen the clouds gathering over the mountains and you've seen the odd flash of lightning over there. But as the evening comes in, as it gets towards dark, suddenly the clouds are over you. Suddenly there are extraordinary flashes of lightning. Suddenly the pyrotechnics have, uh, have, have, have just all come to their fruition. And you, you are safe in your house, just marvelling at this extraordinary show of power and glory. Or um, perhaps another image. Remember the warmth of the early spring this year. And as, we, as you walked in the countryside day on day, you saw the uh, uh, trees changing from grey and brown to having a little halo of green around them. But then one day... On a uh, glorious spring morning, you went for your regular walk and all the may trees had come into beautiful white blossom. And you just think, that's amazing. I've seen hints of this, but this is amazing. Or for the football fans amongst us, look back over the last season. Every week there were matches and slowly a pattern began to emerge It's all about Manchester United and Chelsea, wasn't it? It always is. (laughs) Um, But then last week, the climax. Millions of people watching watching the game. And that, in turn, reaching its extraordinary, but in some ways predictable climax. Ronaldo scores a great goal and someone misses a penalty. Or, uh, here's another image. Listening to a classical, a piece of classical music played by a great orchestra and it starts gently and quietly it explores themes and motifs which grow and fade and appear and disappear as the music goes on perhaps for instance you know Saint-Saëns um, Symphony Number no. 3 the theme you probably know it inspired If I Had Words or uh, it was the theme music for the film Babe if uh, you know the sheep pig um, uh, if you if, if you know that, uh, on that song most of the most of the work is quiet and gentle with woodwind and strings. Do I dare sing it to you? Yes. But it's actually in the last third that suddenly, it just hasn't been there at all, suddenly, the organ comes in. And so on. It's extraordinary. You've heard it before, but you haven't heard it so gloriously. Yeah? You've seen a football match before, but it hasn't come to this climax. You've seen the thunder in the distance, but it hasn't been here on top of you. You've, you've seen the trees slowly going green, but you haven't seen the, the flowers. Well, reading the book of Isaiah is like that a million times more. 
The themes through Isaiah come and go and rise and, uh, and rise and fall, and there are incredibly exciting moments in Isaiah. But I hope that you've begun to see, as we've looked at this last section of uh, uh, Isaiah, I hope that you've begun to see this is where it all comes together. This is where the organ starts, starts really blasting its tune. This is where it's incredibly glorious. Just to remind you of how uh, uh, we've, uh, uh, Isaiah has, has been un, uh, unfolding. We saw that the first 39 chapters, remember the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, focused around a son, a king born of a virgin who would one day rule the whole world. And then chapters 40 to 55 focused around another figure, a servant who would be gentle, who wouldn't break bruised reeds, who wouldn't snuff out uh, smouldering wicks. Uh, But he too would bring God's salvation to the whole world. Indeed, he would ultimately do that through dying on the cross. Dying as a sacrificial lamb, says Isaiah 53. Of course, both of those are Jesus. Jesus, the great king who will draw people from every tribe and nation to himself. Jesus, the servant who will die for his people to forgive people from every tribe and nation and bring them to himself. Those themes have been building in Isaiah. But Isaiah 56 to 66 assumes all that and starts playing those themes really loudly, really strongly, really gloriously. Um, we started our series relatively quietly in some ways, looking at um, um, uh, chapter 56. Do you remember all that? Um, uh, when all people were called to this king, this, uh, this, this servant, this God. And then we saw in... Uh, um, 57 to 59, how uh, um, God is still blisteringly angry with sin, but how he is the high and exalted one who dwells with those who are humble and contrite and lowly in spirit. That's why any of us can come to him, can enjoy his presence, can enjoy the future that he promises us of a new heaven and a new earth, of eternal life beyond death. Because he loves to be with those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. But it's Isaiah 60 to 62 that really, really blasts the tune at full volume. Do you remember uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 60? Arise, shine, your light has come, the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant, your heart will throb and swell with joy. God has risen on his people. God's light is shining on his people. People from all the world will come to this light of God. And what we see now is in, in the churches all over the world is just a microcosm, just a little anticipation of one day that new heaven and that new earth which doesn't even need any sun because the radiance of 
God and of the Lamb fills that place with the light of God's love. God is shining his light on people, drawing people to himself. If you are a Christian here, he is doing this for you. He has begun that process of capturing your heart, of illuminating your heart. And he's not going to finish until he's completed it. Or Isaiah 61, uh, this time it's Jesus speaking. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. God is going to come. Jesus is going to come. Jesus came. <coughs> Proclaiming exactly that good news to the poor. Binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming freedom for those who all their lives were captive to fear and sin and the tyranny of death. Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour. And then Isaiah 62, which we're looking at today. It's God now who speaks again. Do you see that? For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. This, in the context of Isaiah, you see, is heart-stoppingly majestic. This is the rolls of thunder and flashes of lightning over our heads. This is fields of splendour in front of us. This is musical chords of unimaginable power. This is glory. This is, this is the sort of passage that preachers, when they uh, um, are given to preach it, they feel like little children with sort of poster paints and a bristle brush trying to paint like Monet or Michelangelo. But let's have a go. Let's have a go. God is the rising sun, chapter 60. Uh, Jesus is the one who proclaims the year of the Lord's favour, chapter 61. And now in chapter 62, God says, I am not going to give up on this project. I'm not going to stop. I am an unstoppable force. I am an unsilenceable voice. I am going to achieve what I have promised. I will not keep silent. I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a blazing torch. I am absolutely faithful to my people and my promises and I am not going to stop. Let's explore it then. In that context, with that in our mind, with those images in our hearts, what God has to say to us. God is a faithful husband, he says. God promises that he will consummate his promise to love us eternally. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. And, he, and I use the word consummate, consummate intentionally. Because the dominant image is not actually from uh, nature or thunderstorms. It's not from music. The dominant image is marital. God is coming as a husband for his bride. The pagan religions saw their gods as a kind of husband, but only in the sexual sense. He made them and the land uh, fertile. 
But this is far grander, deeper marital language. This is about love and delight and passionate faithfulness. If you are a Christian here this morning, then you are the recipient of God's perfectly faithful, unstoppable, husbandly love. He is determined to morally transform you. As he puts it, so that your righteousness shines like the dawn. He is determined to set you on high as a person saved by the death of Christ, promised an eternity of joy and love and forgiveness in his new creation. He is determined to display his salvation in you like a torch. See that? So our righteousness shines like the dawn and her salvation like a blazing torch. If you are a Christian here, he is determined that people from all sorts of backgrounds and all walks of life will see that in you. Look at verse 2. The nations will see your righteousness. Kings, your glory. And just as when uh, uh, um, a wife marries her husband, she gains a new identity and a new status in society, she, she gain, and that is symbolised by a new name. So it is with us. Verse 2. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. This is you. This is you. If you are a Christian here this morning, this is you. You have a God who is unstoppably committed to making you into the likeness of Christ. You have a God who is unstoppably committed to displaying you as a trophy of his salvation. You have a God who is unstoppably committed to displaying his splendour in you. For a moment, Isaiah switches imagery from straightforward marital imagery, verse 3, you will be a crown of splendour in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Notice we here, we are not crowned, we are the crown, we are the diadem, little um, another type of crown. We are the beautiful evidence of God's authority and rule that he holds out before the world. We are his crown that he delights in and he loves to show the world. Your life was made to declare Jesus is Lord. Then verse 4 captures the dominant theme. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate. You will be called Hephzibah, your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you. Your land will be married. There are four deeply resonant names in this verse that we need to see and understand. Frankly, our society is full of people who carry the label Deserted. 
the uh, young wife with small children deserted by a wayward husband, the children themselves perhaps. Do you know 40% of children will not grow up with both their biological um, parents and possibly even more shocking than that, 70% of those will lose touch completely with their father. Our society knows what the label deserted means. Let alone that sense of desertion that people so often feel when they've lost their relationship with God. They know that they need that and they haven't got it. Or that other label, desolate, which emphasises the emotional response, not just the objective status. The sadness which attends broken relationships, the anger, the self-loathing, the bitterness, the loss of interest in life, the depression, the hopelessness, desolate. Now our society knows those labels. But you see, God says, not one of my people will bear that label. Not one of them. Though life may deal them a hard uh, hand, though they may have real difficulties and real trials, though in this life it may be tough, I will not allow any of them to bear the label deserted or desolate, says God. No, this is the label that I will give you. This is the name that I will give you. I will give you the name Hefzibar, as he says, which means, as you'll see in the footnote, my delight is in her. That's the banner God uh, parades over your life. My delight is in her. God delights in me. God adores me. God is devoted to me. The other label, uh, Beulah, means married. I am irrevocably bound to God. That is my status in the world. That is my promise for the future. That is my security in life when life is difficult. That is my comfort when I feel alone. That is my deepest identity. God has made a vow. He has taken me for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, and even death will not us part. And that is his solemn vow. Verse 5, actually, fascinatingly, just, just tweaks and switches the imagery again as we, uh, uh, as we go through it. Look at verse 5. Uh, as a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. Actually, the people of God's community will also be married to God's community. We are as much married, actually, to one another as we are to God if we are believers here. God promises actually that we will, we will launch ourselves into that relationship with God's people with all the enthusiasm of a young man on his wedding day. It's not just me narrowly enjoying God. Um, 
and the, uh, the love of God. It is us delighting in God's love and living that out in love amongst ourselves. Your sons will marry. But the dominant theme is God's love. It comes back to it again. As a bridegroom, verse 5, rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I so vividly remember my pride in Judy on our wedding day. She's not here, she's teaching Sunday school. Don't tell her I told you this. To think that this young woman was prepared to marry me. This this mixture of sweetness and dynamite, this, uh, this um, uh, vivacious, beautiful, thoughtful, spiritual young woman, to think that she was, was prepared to marry me. I don't know whether you've experienced this. Husbands, you have. I know all of you have, uh, 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 have, have experienced this. And, and to be honest, every single one of us has seen it, haven't they? That sort of goofy grin on the husband's uh, uh, face on his, on his wedding day. That look of unimaginable pride and pleasure that covers the bridegroom, bridegroom's face as they leave the church, and he's thinking, "She really said I do." Well, that's a picture of God's love. God's joyful, faithful, delighting determined love for his people, for you. It is like the bridegroom as he leaves the church, absolutely astounded that he could have such a treasure. If you are a Christian here this morning, I want to remind you, that is the central purpose of your life, to know and to enjoy that love of God. If you are not a Christian here this morning, I want you to see with clarity what you are missing out on. Even if you have the most satisfying relationships, the most happy life, the best life possible, frankly, from an eternal perspective, you have the name deserted and desolate placarded over you. Because you do not know the source of love. You do not know the origin of love. You do not know love itself. You have only seen pale shadows which will pass away. You do not know the real thing. Find the real thing. Everything good that you have ever seen in this creation was put here to shout out about the glory and the splendour and the majesty and the faithfulness and the love of God. Seek him. Find him. Remember what uh, Paul says to Christians in the New Testament. He prays for the Ephesians. Do you remember? He says in chapter 3 of Ephesians, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
We are filled and full as we discover what is beyond knowledge, do you see? To know this love which surpasses knowledge is an extraordinary statement. We can know something that's beyond knowledge. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 assures Christians God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. Or Romans chapter 8 verses 35 and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. I will not remain quiet. Like a bridegroom who rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. This is our privilege. Feel it. Know it. Enjoy it. Delight in it. This is the greatest privilege we could ever have in all eternity. To have God loving us like a husband who is determined to be faithful. Who is determined to make us new. Who is determined to parade us in our glory before his world and say, look, this is my crown. Look, the way this person shines. They shine with the reflection of me. Look and come to me. That is what God is doing in your life. So how should we respond? Well, I want to just uh, pick out a couple of ways in which we should respond. The first one, a bit surprising. The first one is prayer. See verse 6. I've posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They'll never be silent, day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the prize of the earth. This, this, is, this is extraordinary. Remember, God has made the strongest possible personal assertions on his own authority, I am going to keep my promises. I'm going to keep my promise to send a king, chapters 1 to 39. I'm going to keep my promise to send a servant, chapters 40 to 55. I'm going to keep my promise to rise like the sun upon you and illuminate your hearts, chapter 60. I'm going to keep my promise to send Jesus who will proclaim the year of the, uh, year of the Lord's favour. But now you need to ask me to do it. He's appointed watchman, he says. 
on the walls. And he said, they must never be silent. He calls us, as we pray, never to rest. And more than that, he calls us to give him no rest. Did you notice that? Verse uh, 7, give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Sometimes I say to my children, um, I, I promise to you that I will do so and so, and remind me that I made that promise. And I usually regret saying it. But God has no regrets. Remind me, he says. Remind me in the morning. Remind me at night. I want to hear you calling out to me. I promised you to make you beautiful. Remind me. I promised to make you righteous. Remind me. I promised to make you the praise of the nations. Remind me. Give me no rest. How we need to be prayers. I'm so pleased with our Thursday morning prayer meeting. Why why don't you go along? It's a faithful group of people. Um, I'm so pleased to uh, uh, have some people who on their own pray faithfully day and night amongst us. What a massively important part of our church life that is. But all of us need to do that. And what your prayer life is like. Some people say, well, what's the point of praying God's made the promise? So why should, I, uh, why, why should I bother to pray? But the point is that prayer, uh, that God's promises don't make uh, prayers um, uh, uh, unnecessary, they make them possible. We can pray to God because he has promised that this is what he wants to do and he delights to do it alongside us, with us, So as we pray according to his will, that we would be morally transformed, that we would be personally transformed, that we would enjoy his love, that we as a community would be people who reflect the glory of Jesus. We are praying prayers that God loves to hear and loves to answer. Pray. Remind me, he says, give me no rest until I've achieved that. And then the second thing. Live it. Verse 10. Pass through. Pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nations. It's actually not quite clear to me anyway what direction the people are to pass through the gates, perhaps, it is a great call to enter God's city, God's community, that Jerusalem stands for here as a symbol of what God is doing. In which case it would be a call to those who don't yet know Christ. Come in, join this community. But actually in context, I suspect the image is probably the other way round. Unless it's both. But the other way round is 
you who belong to this community, get out there and start preparing the way for God to come and God's people to come into his community. Prepare the way for the people, he says. Build a strong, straight highway. Build up, build up this highway. Make sure there are no stones to trip people up. Get out there and live it. You are the recipients of extraordinary love, extraordinary faithfulness. Now live it. Live it on Monday morning when you go into work. Live it later today amongst your family. Live it amongst your friends. Live it so that people actually will find that there's a straight and easy pathway for them to come into God's community. Because there is no stone that we've put in their way to make them stumble. There is no tortuous path, but we've made it straight. Jesus has done something extraordinary for me. Please find out about it. And because of the character of our lives, they do not stumble They do not wind round the back alleys. They come in and find Christ. Live it. Raise that banner high which proclaims Jesus. Raise a banner for the nations, says Isaiah. Now those gentle themes then that have bubbled and boiled and so on in uh, Isaiah as the time has gone on. Now, in these three chapters, 60, 61 and 62, reached an extraordinary climax. Arise, shine. My light is shining on you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, says Jesus. I've come to fulfil God's promises. I will not be silent, says God. So give me no rest until my story is complete. Pray day and night. And live it. Because you are part of a story which is heading for glory. Heading for a place where there is no darkness, no mourning, no sadness. No desolation, no desertion, just God's delight in us and the consummation of God's marriage to us. I just don't know what that means in your life. I wish I did. I wish I could tell you exactly what you need to do now. I don't know. Perhaps it's to come to God for the first time and be part of that story. Perhaps it's some relationship that you know you need to do something about. Perhaps it's some private sin that you know you need to pray day and night about and give him no rest until he enables you to overcome it. Perhaps it's just you need to repent of those negative, depressed, self-pitying thoughts. 
Why, you've got a husband who delights over you. The eternal God. All I know is if God is like this and he's promised this much how can we not live it? But every fibre of our being every, every ounce of our energy every day of our lives how can we not live it? Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner. This is our God. He loves us forever and ever.